You're listening to Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 16, featuring Dave Watts, founder and drummer of the Motet, as well as vocalist Lyle Davinsky. Huge thanks to Aspen Brewing Company for hosting the event at the Aspen Tap. Find out more about them at aspenbrewingcompany.com. If you want to check out the Motet's latest music, tour dates, buy merch, or do anything like that, head to themotet.com. That's V-M-O-T-E-T.com. The Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast and Showcase events are also presented in partnership with Klug Properties. To learn more, head to klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com. Once again, this is Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast, Episode 16, hosted by Dave Mayer, featuring the Motet founder and drummer, Dave Watts, and vocalist, Lyle Davinsky. Maybe just a little bit of an intro on who you are and how you fit into the band, and we can go from there. Hey, I'm Dave Watts. I'm the drummer of the Motet. Hi, I'm Lyle. I'm the singer for the Motet. Thank you. All right. Well, that was easy. Interview's really over. Easy. Yeah. Thanks. Nice <laughs> this work. has been great. Thanks all for coming yep. out. Uh, all right. So we're here to talk about uh, the entrepreneurial journey of a professional musician. Uh, this is the first time we've done this. Usually it's folks in the venture capital world or startup world. So this is the first time we've gone into the professional musician world and... Uh, so Dave and I met in, what, 1999, <laughs> forever ago, actually roommates in a galaxy far, far away. Um, That's a whole different story. Totally. Yeah. Um, I was in eighth grade. Sorry. <laughs> you weren't with us. You weren't allowed to be with us. No, 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 no. Not yet. So, you know, one of my first questions to a lot of our guests is, you know, what's your first entrepreneurial memory? And, and I guess in this case... You know, I think I asked you, what's your first memory of, of, of making money as a musician? And you had some, some pretty funny stories about uh, working in some pretty seedy, seedy places and practicing in the basement of a freaking pet store or something. <laughs> I told you that was true. Yeah. I, just, I, I tell everybody that story. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was my first, my first band. We rehearsed in the basement of the pet store. So, first band... Practicing in the basement, not in the basement of the science building, but in the basement no. of a pet store. Yeah. So how did that come about? It's called paying well, your dues, man. No doubt. And you were how old? Uh, I was like 15 or 16. The rest of the dudes were in their 30s. That's pretty sketchy. So my mom, my mom wasn't excited about that. But it was, good, uh, it was good just jumping into the fire. And so what kind of band was it, and how the hell did they find you? <laughs> It was like a, it was kind of like a '80s metal, metal band. 80s Back when metal, I had hair, like hair band. Uh, yeah, I had hair. A so I was poison. Gonna, we didn't do poison. We did rat. You know, rat. Rat. Yeah. Yes. Round and round. Yep. Round and round. <laughs> yes. So, needless to say, the motets not that. I've changed. I've yeah, changed we'll my yeah. style. We will not be playing round and round no, tonight. No, I've moved on from that. But it was a good place Maybe to Halloween? start. Huh? <laughs> Maybe on Halloween. On Halloween? No. Not even on Halloween. No. <laughs> no. Uh, so that was my first. I didn't make any money, though. So no? that doesn't count as an entrepreneurial 
for a. That's true. What yeah. was? You think you said you made a hundred bucks at one point? I think it was a yeah. jazz band. No, my first, my first paying gig was uh, I was the drummer in the in the high school performance of Grease. Right. Yeah, and I was and I was in the pit band, and I was also in on stage, and I got to grease my hair back. Back when I had hair. And you you got paid for that? Yeah, I had 120 in high bucks. School? 120 what? bucks, man. It was amazing, man. It was very exciting. Yeah. It was uh it was yeah, it was one of those moments like, "Oh, I can do this." The light went off. I, yeah, I was like, the light went on. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Depends glasses half full, man. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Which makes me think of another story. I I I used to practice in my basement. And I had locked the doors. I made this little like honeycomb hideout down there. And I would play drums. And the only way you know, I could hear that someone wanted to get in was I, I rigged up a light bulb and then made it connected to a door knob or a doorbell. And then you could push the doorbell and the light would go on. So I, I always would run home from school to practice drums. And I knew when my brother got home because the light would start flashing like crazy. And he'd be like, stop playing, man. So that was like the light going on just reminds me of that experience of like having to like work extra hard to practice and get something, you know. I love it. You gotta like, you gotta push past the, the, um, the sort of negative feedback you might get from your environment. Right, love it. Lyle, what was your first paying gig? Uh, my first paying gig was, uh, so a, a little, like slight backstory, cause, cause the, car, the, the dominoes kind of fell. I was a pretty delusional kid when I was younger and thought that I was going to the NBA. And so I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. Luckily, I've kind of switched my mode, and I've decided that a Mainer could be a soul singer, which is a like much more uh, just like on the on the track kind of path. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but so I was messing around with my basketball coach, who I love pushing his buttons, uh, and I was like, "So you're going to let me sing the national anthem?" Expecting him to be like, "Shut up and go run," and uh, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll go lock it up." And so I had to sing just because I had to prove it to him. I couldn't back down from that. So I did that right around the same time, reconnected with some, uh, with some friends of mine, and they were like, oh, shit, you could sing? Like, come on and play with us. And I was like, all right, cool, sounds good. And we got uh, uh, this every Sunday gig. So we all grew our beards out and then got, uh, got one member who was over 21 and had him be the one that talked to everybody. Uh, at the at the at the bars and everything like right. that, so they thought that we were 21, <laughs> uh, and so then we'd go and like it was a little hole in the wall Sunday night in the middle of winter in Portland, Maine, and we'd like make just enough money to take us and one lucky friend out to Denny's afterward. And and, and he Lyle Lyle oh, sang the on, national man. anthem at the Knicks the Knicks right. game exactly. earlier this year. Hey, so. man. come come a long full way. circle right Come there. a long way. Man. And at the Rockies, you sang at the Rockies yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. All right, if you're lucky, we'll do the anthem later. Maybe. <laughs> if we're lucky, Dave will do the anthem yeah. later. <laughs> what, um, one of the other questions that I thought was really interesting, like how do, how do you arrive at this? You know, what was your parents' influence in this process? How do you, you know, you guys are nationally touring musicians now, selling out Red Rocks, got freaking Galactic opening up for you, which is somewhat mind-numbing, right? I mean, it's amazing. How, so... Winding the clock back a little bit, you know, Dave, you, you told me a story about how your parents were just super supportive, but just bring us up to speed on, you know, what, what that meant to you in the formative years. Uh, well, I told you that, you know, they basically just wanted me to be happy. 
They didn't, they didn't necessarily encourage me, but they didn't hold me back either, which is a big thing. But I think that, you know, discouragement isn't the worst form of, uh, of sort of getting somebody to do something. Sometimes you have to put some obstacles in the way, have to make them try a little harder to get it, something, see if they really want it. You know what I mean? Sure. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily think it was... The fact that I didn't come from a musical family was a, a detriment. It was almost like I was more inspired to try that much harder to, to get somewhere and prove myself. I think I told you the story that in sixth grade, I actually failed out of music. Right. And then Miss McKenzie like took Jordan, my drumsticks. Man. You were like Michael Jordan. Was I? Yeah, like Michael Jordan didn't make his JV team in, uh, in, co- in high school, I mean. <laughs> you were basically you the Michael Jordan Pretty of drums, dude. Wow. It explains a lot. This is beautiful. <laughs> no, I said my, my music teacher took my drumsticks. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'm going to show her. So I dedicate every show to Miss McKenzie. Yeah, what's up, Miss McKenzie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This sold out show that. is dedicated to you. You got to find her on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So. Yeah. I should put her on the guest list. That's it. Rub Just, it in. Yeah. On every show. Yeah. Every show, just in case she wants to come just, out. Yeah. yeah and, then, and when the, she does, I'll tell her she has to pay. <laughs> Sorry, we digress. Uh, Lyle, what, did you, what role did your parents play in, in you getting to this point? Oh, man, uh, I mean, kind of the biggest role. Like, to, to work from now and then work backwards, we just had my pop sit in on, uh, on New Year's Eve when we were back home in Portland, Maine. So my dad is my favorite singer in the world. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I was raised, he was, a, he was a professional musician from the time I came out the womb. Um, so, you know, I, I remember uh, when I was like seven years old, uh, my mom was playing some James Taylor in the, uh, in, in the kitchen and You Can Close Your Eyes came on and I knew every single word to it. And I was like, I've never heard this song before, but I know every word. Like, what's the deal with that? And we all kind of had a moment because my dad used to sing me to sleep with that song when I was a baby. And it was wow. like kind of an incredible, you know, power of the brain and power of music right. kind of thing that that was ingrained in me. That's and, pretty amazing. And, you know, I, I, I was raised just like my favorite times were sitting around with my dad and his friends were just sitting around with like, a, like you know, a 30 pack of beer, a couple of bottles of wine, <laughs> just like playing guitar and singing. And so... Like I said, I mean, I think every kid kind of rebels against their parents, even if their parents are really cool. So like I said, I thought I was going to be a basketball player. I was like, that's my dad's thing. And then eventually found it. And like, I was really happy that he, him and my mom never pushed it on me, but always encouraged me to explore the passions that I had. So, um, so we'll stick with you for a minute. Uh, obviously, you guys, you're a relatively new addition to the band. Why don't you bring yes, us up to speed on your entrepreneurial journey here you were a solo musician for for much of your time yeah man like five years ago i was playing in the subways so <laughs> these boys helped me out real good <laughs> no i was uh, i was uh, so after college uh i moved down to brooklyn new york and you know i started off my first four years that i was there i was playing in the subways during the day and then going above ground to play at night but I always knew that I wanted to have the baddest band, so I had to pay the musicians. So a lot of the time, I would lose money on the gigs above ground, so I would play for longer 
below ground in order to make the money in order to pay the dope musicians so that I could present the best product. You know, we were actually talking about it in the car uh, on the on the drive here uh, that like. David Bowie, when he was first uh, first getting like kind of coming into it, he would spend all his money on limos and cars so that everybody thought that he was a better, uh, like like bigger and better than he really was. And it was kind of like painting. It was like the original Instagram or something like that, you know, just like painting painting the whole picture like that. And so, I kind of had to do that where like I was lucky to have a really cool uh, a really cool community around me. I'd already met a lot of the folks in Turquoise and Lettuce and the Royal Family and that whole crew. So I was introduced to a really amazing uh, community of musicians in Brooklyn, but I was broke as hell and didn't have any money to pay any of them. So I had to find ways to make money in order to lose money in order to make myself look better than, well, kind of be at the level that I knew that I was capable of being at. I just didn't have the funds for it. So it was just a, a matter of kind of, the, that was like the, the, the first uh, example of, inv of investment that I, that I recognized. Nice. Uh, it, it worked. Right? Like, here we are. If, if, if well, I only knew you as a busking musician, we probably wouldn't have hired you for the Motet. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, and, and funny enough, Turquoise and Lettuce, the community builders there were kind of the ones that brought me in, uh, brought me in with y'all as well. They were, yeah. So, yeah, right. Some full circle stuff. So, Dave, you said something that was interesting that was, you know, you were on the East Coast and that it was a real game changer to move to Colorado. So, why did you decide to move to Colorado? What year was that? And, uh, how, and how, did that, how did that really change things for you? Yeah, I think that, I was saying that's, that was my first real um, uh, business decision, like one of my best business decisions, right? Uh, in the mid 90s, my band from, uh, from Boston was touring Colorado, and I just decided to stay because I saw what a great scene it was in Colorado, uh, specifically in Boulder, and I realized I could actually make a living playing in Boulder, whereas in Boston you're just kind of struggling. It's a rat race, you know? So it felt like coming out to Colorado was gonna be this boon for me. I could be a small fish, or sorry, big fish. Big fish in a small pond, right? And, and really have a, an ability to, to create a group, create a band that was going to do something. Um, so it, it just felt like a really good opportunity. That was like 1994, I think. Right. And so, Lyle, sounds like you have vaguely similar, like you tried to, tried to make it in New York and went back to Portland after that didn't Yeah, I mean, work I, I moved back to Portland. Uh, I had worked for about four years on, uh, on my solo record. Um, poured my heart and soul into that and a whole lot of money into that and then three weeks after I put that out got the call from Dave and the boys to join the group yeah. <laughs> it was just, sorry and I, yeah I know and so I was like I poured all my money into the, into the solo record so I was ready to leave New York because that was kind of my goal was move down to New York create a community uh, put together the record that I had always wanted to make and then then I'd be okay with leaving. And so then I was leaving just to be able to save up some money to start touring and do all that kind of stuff. And yeah, like I said, three weeks later, these boys called. And at first I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. This is bad timing. And then they're just like, we're going to be headlining Red Rocks in six months. I'm like, yeah, word, let's do this. <laughs> Hello. I'm glad we had that kind that of leverage. Trump card. It's pretty good leverage. <laughs> it worked yeah, out well. Pretty good leverage. Yeah. yeah, especially when you're just like, yeah, and Medeski Martin and Wood and Wolfpack are opening for us. Yeah. It's like, yeah, word. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sign me up. <laughs> so, Dave, when, when you and I met, it was, I think you said after about the fourth gig, 
of the Motet in the in the '90s, and uh, and you guys were were heavy into the the Afro-Cuban influence, and you went through your different phases in the early days of of sort of exploring, trying to find your sound. Right. You talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, I think it was all just an experiment, you know, with less focus on specifics and more just let's see what we can come up with. So, um, I, you know, Colorado is such a fertile music scene. There's so much good music here. And there's so many great players in the front range that it just seemed like a good way to try and build the band, call different guys, try some different music, try and build it up organically from scratch. It was never like, this is one specific thing and we're going to you know, go to the top. It's like, let's, let's have fun. Let's get creative. Let's see what we can come up with. And it's just kind of grown from there. That's why our sound has changed over the years because the different players have always brought in a different sound and a different focus. And that's really been the secret to our success is just being tenacious and flexible to shift and change with whatever happens. In fact, that's why I came up with the name The Motet, which I think was the second best business decision I made. You beat me to it. <laughs> was, was uh, creating a project that the name stayed the same. Because I'd been in so many different groups. I think groups what you where, said was failure resilient. Yeah, failure resilient, right, exactly. Like the name's going to stay the same regardless of the band members or the style or the ups and downs of the biz. At least that brand will be there and we can keep building it from there until it does become something extremely solid that's going to you know, survive whatever stuff that comes its way, you know. So, I think you said 08. Was that the reset button? When, uh, when you sort of, everybody left and... You, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a little changing of the guard. Changing of the guard. So, 08. Yeah. So, so, walk us through that. It was like, you know, you had a band. You were touring. Things were going pretty well. And then you hit the reset button in 08. Why and how and... Well, up to that point, it was kind of like, we're going to tour... Just get out there and play as many dates as possible, and that's the way to to make uh, make you know some something happen for the band. And we realized that after a while, that you can just schlep and schlep, but you're not necessarily going to make a difference. So at that point, a bunch of the guys had gotten calls for different gigs. Uh, Garrett was doing a gig with Dwayne. Ryan was doing um, I can't remember another artist Brett from Denon. California. Brett Denon, right? Brett Denon. And so I basically started the whole thing over and was just calling different players for, for different gigs and built it from there and really focused on the business side as opposed to simply let's go out and play as many shows as possible. Right. And so we were, at that point, we were doing like 20 shows a year. You know, now we're up to close to 100, but at that point, it was like 20 shows a year maybe, but they're all in Colorado and they built up our Colorado fan base, which was the most important thing. Right. So we'll get to the Halloween shows in a minute. Lyle... Did you hit the reset button a few times? Do you feel like you... Sounds like you went through a couple iterations of your journey as well. I mean, yeah, in a certain sense, I think that it was kind of like a, a figuring it out kind of point. Because for me, I, I came into music kind of late. Like, I didn't start playing until I was about 17. And then, you know, went to college and kind of fought making music the, the full thing because I wanted it to be the thing that made me feel good, then realized that it was all I wanted to do. So then I got down to New York and just kind of like 
didn't have a clue at all of what I was doing. So it was basically just like move down, be open, and like surround myself with the most knowledgeable and the baddest players that I could that, that I could be around, and then just work harder than anybody else. And that was kind of that was kind of the thing. Is like I knew that if I created a network, if I surrounded myself with people who I could learn from, and just worked harder than everybody then I would eventually learn what the fuck I was supposed to do. Right? No, I love it. I think it's a great life philosophy in general. Who are there some of the folks that you look up to? Who, who are some of the mentors that you had along the way? In, like, in, 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 at that point? Yep. yep. Um, you know, being surrounded by some of the, like, Soul Live and, and, and Lettuce crew, like, Eric Krasno is a, a, an incredibly knowledgeable dude and... Uh, and, and Watching him kind of float between so many scenes and between so many different uh, different areas and, and and be able to adapt into all of those was a really amazing thing. And musically, being surrounded by like Nigel Hall, who's one of my favorite singers, like being able to listen to him, but then also be able to go into like the Rockwood Music Hall scene. And there's this uh, songwriter Emily King, who's just like. It, like not the greatest singer, not the greatest guitar player, not the greatest keys player, but smart. Every decision is just taste is is at the forefront, and uh, and being able to see that. And then I was also lucky to make some friends with people that were kind of in the business. So people over at BMI, uh, what was formerly EMI, and then like uh, and, and kind of get a little knowledge into what the industry side of things was, and like start to see uh, like my buddy Jake Simon, who now he worked for Universal and now works for Hollywood Records and he was somebody who was able to give me a lot of perspective um, my buddy Adam Agati from who's also from Maine plays in Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles one of the best songwriters I've ever met in my life and very dialed into the songwriting scene and just like slowly but surely trying to like put the pieces together because as like as with anything as you rise further and further up uh, the scene kind of becomes a little bit smaller and the power players like like are, are a community in, in, unto themselves. And so just by being curious, by, by being a good person, you know, people wonder like what's networking and it's like, you don't always have to go into it with an aim. You just have to go into it and find people that are jointly passionate about what you're passionate about and that also have the same drive as you that want to race to the top, so. Is it also just being willing to ask for help? Always, man. Always. You're not going to be able to do this, like any yep. of it, on your own. Yeah. Let's set that ego aside. Yeah, please. Yes. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Aspen Entrepreneurs Showcase and Podcast is presented in partnership with Klug Properties. Chris Klug spent 20 years doing what he loves riding a snowboard on the World Cup circuit. After visiting ski resorts all over the world, he was convinced that there was no place like Aspen Snowmass. Chris brings this passion for snowboarding to the surrounding community, his family and friends, and his clients. Klug Properties has helped to create a powerful marketing platform with expansive social media networks, digital media distribution, and the worldwide reach of Sotheby's International Realty. Chris Klug only knows how to do business one way with integrity, and a commitment to go above and beyond for his clients. For more information, visit klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com.
Dave, I know you talked about when you hit the reset button and you got you got some of the core players before the Halloween shows took off that you really started studying the discography of the 70s and 80s funk. Did you get to, before sort of talk specifically about that and how that led to, to where we are now, I'm curious about, you know, did you get to ever sit down with any of those folks that you really look up to and, you know, and, and you know, backstage at any of the, any of the gigs uh, in New Orleans or whatever, you know, and any sort of sage advice that, uh, that you might share with some aspiring musicians? I wish. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just a little, they're I obviously wish. a little further on in age. So. Yeah, no, that, that didn't happen. No, you no. just got to grind it out yourself. Yeah, on my own. No, I, I, uh, I was actually thinking about you when you were talking about influences. Um, really, I think some of the bands that I've been around have influenced me in seeing how you can grow a band organically. Like When I was a kid, it was all about get signed to a record label, and then the record company puts a bunch of money behind you, and then you can go in the studio, and then you part of this big churning industry but once you made it then you, just, you didn't have to try anymore it was like it was done we made it we're, we're signed it's good and and you know starting in the late 80s early 90s we started to realize that you could actually tour and build your band on your own you know and the first band to do that that we saw was fish and so right. you know, my band from from uh from boston called chakra used to tour out to colorado the first time we came out fish gave us their mailing list. And back in those oh, days, yeah. that was, that <laughs> was like you. a second, they did like one or two tours out and they played the Fly Me in the Moon. They played out the Eldo. They did all the little tiny places that we've all done a million times. And, uh, but they gave us their mailing list. And back then, if you wanted to actually get somewhere in music and you were you know, organically grown like, like we were, we were just not signed any label or anything, you had to like take a bunch of little postcards right. and buy a bunch of stamps and literally like lick stamps and put the things on the fucking postcards and put return addresses on it. You would literally have you know, mailing list parties. You get your friends over, buy a bunch of beer. And if you went through all that effort, you knew that you had to step up on the competition. You might actually get somewhere, you know? That's amazing. So, so we got Fish's uh, mailing list and we came out to Colorado the first time and we were selling out all these places <laughs> being like, holy shit, you can do this. You know, like this is possible. We don't have to figure out the right sound to appeal to the A&R guy at Sony or wherever to try and get a deal. We can grow our own scene and create our own scene. So that was like a sort of like another point at which the light went on like, oh, I see, we can, this is possible to do. We can make this happen. And so seeing a band like Fish do that, and then when I moved to Colorado, we got a house in Boulder on this big plot of land. It was basically a hippie commune. 17-acre ranch. No, a different one. Different, Before different, that different hippie, hippie commune. That's right. <laughs> Pre-your pre hippie commune. We had one like down in Boulder. Like a nine-acre ranch or something like that? Huh? Nine-acre ranch or something? Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. It, it was four and a half. But uh, <laughs> it was right in Boulder. Now it's just like big McMansion houses. But... We had all this land, and so I met these dudes down in Telluride. Drummer's name was Travis, and he was playing with some of the local guys, but he had this startup group called String Cheese, and he just added a snare drum to his kungas, and it was like doing this whole like, you know, big, big drum set, like two kungas and a snare drum. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know. And they were playing amazing. bluegrass, and they were playing the bluegrass festival down in Telluride, and so we talked it up. 
Travis moves to Boulder, Kang moves to Boulder, they move into our hippie commune. We have this little like crazy hippie scene going on in like 1995. They had their tour bus parked there. It was just this community of friends in Boulder that we had for probably four years. But seeing string cheese start from nothing to being you know, a group that sells out venues all over the country was really inspiring. Like, okay, this can happen. You, know, you see how these things catch on, whatever it is. We saw um, Big Gigantic. Dominic used to play saxophone in Motet for five years. You know, and then one day we all were like, let's buy laptops and learn how to use Ableton. You know, we're all fucking around with Ableton. And then, you know, back in those days, we were all broke as shit. You know, Dom was like making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the bus. And, you know, but we, he was like working hard at making, making beats and trying to make a sound. And he really realized there was a wave happening with electronic music and decided just to jump on board. He knew he could do it. He knew what he needed to do. And he like went after it. And you see the results. So seeing guys like that, that are that close to me, is inspiring to like, we can, you can do this. You know? I know, what's that dude even doing now? <laughs> what's that dude even doing now? I you don't know? know, he's probably busking. In New York. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> in the subway. Yeah, the subway. <laughs> yeah. Busking, um, busking in stadiums for lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the themes that I hear are, are drive, tenacity, passion, yeah. Chasing and, your dreams. And blind disillusion. And <laughs> yeah. It also good you gotta make good music. That's what I tell yeah. people and now. Community. It's like you got the one thing you have to do is make good music. Absolutely. Right. The best part of, of it is right. you don't need the record companies. You make shitty music, this ain't gonna happen. Yeah, you, you don't need the record companies, you just need the really good music and then people will hear it and they're guaranteed you're gonna go somewhere with it. It's no guarantee where you're gonna go, but you're gonna go somewhere. You just gotta make the music good. You know, that can't be an afterthought. It has to be like the focus. Well, it has to be number one. So for those of you in the audience, we got about 10 or 15 minutes left. So think about the questions that you have for these gentlemen. I'm going to ask one more, and then I'll open it up. Um, one of the things that I thought was most interesting that you hear from a lot of really successful entrepreneurs is, is visualization, right? Is see where you want to go, right? And, and one of the things you told me was during the week, I think, that... Uh, it was in the early years. You went over to Red Rocks one day, and, and tell me about that. And uh, oh yeah, then I was on a chakra tour. On the chakra tour, you <laughs> decided you said, "I'm going to play this damn place one day." Yeah, yeah. I was like up on stage with my buddy. The place was like just a state park. You know, there wasn't, wasn't a show. We just were able to walk up on stage and playing our drums on stage. We brought a couple djembes or whatever. We were playing on stage. And I'm just listening to the sound reverberate off the rocks. I think this is like '92, maybe. And uh, I'm like, man, I'm going to play here someday. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, I mean, yeah. right? You just make shit happen. Yeah. Lyle, any stories like that? Just sort of visual, visualize yeah, your future. Absolutely. So uh, this was kind of another, another like familial support kind of thing uh, coming from my sister, who these guys have met and is the, is the real rock star in my family. She has never, never been on a stage before, but she, uh, she takes over a room better than anybody else I've ever seen. But uh, when I was playing in the subways, she was just like, yeah, just take it from subways to stadiums. Subways to stadiums. And it, and it was right? funny because I just like, she told me that and I'm just like, all right, I could do that. That could be your, your greatest hits album. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like so, it, but, but, that, but then it's kind of cool because then last year, sang the national anthem at MSG, actually did that. And, like, and then playing Red wow. Rocks and things like that, it's like, yep. you know. High fives. Yeah, that's it. 
Subways to Stadiums, man. Subways to Stadiums. That'll be the name of the podcast. That'll be the name of the podcast. There it is. I like it. I like it. Uh, So I know we have a few questions, but I want to make sure we talk about sort of the current iteration, how we got here. You know, let's talk briefly about the Halloween shows that you said that was one of the core things that was most important was finding your sound. So talk about Halloween shows, how those came about. And they just, they just, things just blew up seemingly after that. Yeah, I think it was circumstance. We had a, a Halloween where our singer wasn't able to make the show, and we were an instrumental group for Halloween, but we got this gig at the Fox Theater, and this was 2001 maybe. And so we decided to play the music of Herbie Hancock because we love that music. And uh, the show sold out, and it seemed like just a no-brainer to do it every year. But we all love listening to 70s funk. So it just ended up being every year we chose a different 70s funk group. You know, Stevie Wonder, Tower of Power. uh, Prince. Prince, yeah. I mean, it was just 13, 14 years of that. So, but when when you study a group's entire discography and their live shows and really dig into all their music and learn every part and figure out what makes each song tick, you can't help but ingrain that into your own playing, into your own songwriting. So we eventually were like, let's write songs like this. It's kind of the, the Hunter S. Thompson and like Bob Dylan approach. Because I don't know if you know, like Hunter S. Thompson took his, like, his 10 favorite novels and he sat at the typewriter and typed them from start to finish just to feel what it would feel like to write that beautiful. Like, and to write at that capacity. And like Bob Dylan, he learned, you know, hundreds and hundreds of old folk songs in order to understand what it was to write those songs. It's like to be able to put yourself into the minds and into the, uh, you know, the fingers, the hands, the, the notes that these incredible people produce. Like, it's going to rub off on you. You guys are going to need to go down to uh, Woody Creek Tavern and go hang out with the ghost of Hunter S. Thompson. Sounds great. Yep. Hey. Uh, Just make sure I'm not driving. Right. <laughs> so open it up a little bit. I, we obviously have plenty more to talk about, but Brian, I think you had a question. So th- this this whole event was kind of comparing, um, you know, the entrepreneurial experience of a band, right? So one of the things that you know, there's a lot of really smart people that could start companies, right? And I imagine there's a lot of really good musicians that could start bands. Right. So what you know, you were talking about all the effort, you know, obviously you have a support staff. So how does that work? Like, how do you like is us is your support staff? It's just like hiring. Like if you're starting a company, you got to hire good people. Right. And those good people are really good because you can't do it all yourself. Right. You're focused on the music. Your guys are kicking ass. But how do you find people that are going to help you? Like what what was your strategy? Like what what? how did you build an army that was going to get you guys out there? That's a good question. And a hard one. Because uh, it's so easy to find a really shitty manager. There, there are so many people that say they will help you do this and that. And in the end, a manager for, in music, it might be one of the toughest jobs out there. And, and maybe one of the most difficult to... Because you could work really hard at it and not get results. Yeah, thankless, and also it's hard to be good at it. Uh, so we, we definitely went through, in fact, I was pretty cynical. If you asked me this question 10 years ago, I'd be like, Psh, there aren't any good managers. And, you know, and, and I was definitely doing it myself back then. I mean, I spent a solid 
12 years managing the band myself, doing everything. And, and that's why I, we had the reset button, because I realized I couldn't do that much and do it well, you know, and then especially be, and then being a drummer, you know. So we, we slowed it down to like 20 shows a year, and we stayed local. And it, we just had to, you have to build up your, I mean, I don't know how you do it in other businesses, venture capitalists and other people that invest in a band, in, people will invest in all sorts of projects, but no one wants to invest in a band. You know what I mean? I shouldn't say no one, but seriously, like, you're in a band, you're trying to convince someone to give you money, it's like, good luck. It's such a guaranteed success, Yeah, though. no. <laughs> That's the downside of not having the record industry behind you. Right. You know, because then right. you're like, okay, we have to create the industry ourselves, and we have to convince people in the industry that we're worthy. You know, and the best way to do that is to sell tickets. If, you see, if you're making money, then people believe in you. So I always tell young bands, make your home scene your strongest market and always give it the most love. Don't just come home from a tour and then throw that, you know, the, the, the hometown date at the end of a tour and have it be like, whatever. It's gotta be a really important show. So you sell the tickets, you get people out, and your fans are really, they relate to you and they, they, you feel like that you're their band, you know? You wanna be your hometown fans' band. You wanna tell everybody, uh, yeah, that's our band, you know, that they're from Sage here. Sage advice. So anyway, Build up your capital, build up, sell for a band, sell tickets, do well enough that you can get some excitement and interest from people, but you still got to pick the right one. So basically, we did it for a number of years, and then eventually, I just found somebody that I've trusted to take over some of the work, and that was a hard thing to do. But you did say it opened up your creativity. Yeah, it gave me more time. I just had to let go of some of that control, you know? But you just, you have to build a team. You have to... You really have to manage the managers, too, which is, a, I mean, I'm sure, like, every business owner feels that way. You have to manage the people that are managing and, you know, and trust them that they're going to do it right, but you can't manage, micromanage or whatever. You've got to let them do their job. Uh, so, I don't know. I think you just slowly, for us, it slowly built it up over time. I think you did say that you, what, super interesting that you said that you created the band as an LLC or, or moved into an LLC. So, yeah. that was... That was super interesting. Yeah, that was the next step, is get the band members a part of the band financially and business-wise. Because for the longest time, it was just me. It was my band. It was my liability. It was my you know, financial efforts. All, everything came down to me, which has... It's good, but the band used to be the Dave Watts Motet, and I changed it to the Motet because I didn't want to be a band leader that was just you know, making all the decisions. I wanted to be a group. I knew that the... The whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts. Is that what it is? Is there something like that? <laughs> of course you have a second question. We, we, only, yeah, we only have a few more minutes, so I want to be respectful. I think you're up if you want to come up and use the microphone. My question is a two-part question. So of all the music cities that you, you could have gone to. There's, you know, there's Austin, Texas, there's Nashville. There's a lot of places where not just, you know, the styles of music are all over the place and there's, there's great people that you can be with. What drew you to Boulder? And, and I have an anecdote of being there in the late 80s where I wandered into a bar to an unknown band. It was named Big Head Todd and the Monsters. But anyhow, I mean, that was just something that I was like, this has happened. Like, what the hell is this? But anyhow, so what drew, drew you to where you were? And also, since the show sold out, since we're all here, how do we get in? Nice. 
Uh, so I, with that same tour I was talking about where we use Fish's mailing list, we showed up at, at, at the Fox Theater, sold out show at the Fox. Next door was a venue called Tulagi. Tulagi, which was a historic venue, is not there anymore, was sold out with a group called Band Du Jour from the mid-90s. Next door was a place called Taylor's. That was packed. At the Boulder Theater was the Leftover Salmon, and that was sold out. So, and I'm standing on the, the hill, and it's just like people up and, and down the street. This is your first time in Boulder? Yeah, and it was like a Tuesday. It wasn't a Tuesday. It was like probably a Friday night. But, you know, in the middle of February. It wasn't a special occasion. And, and everything was packed and raging, and everyone was out. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to live energy. here. I need to live here. You know, like, this is where it can happen. So I, touring to Boulder... And knowing that this vibrant scene was happening and that the fans were coming out, it wasn't just vibrant because of the musicians, it was vibrant because of the fans. I knew that I could make a living and start a project that was going to do really well. So it was just being in the thick of that. And, you know, I'd spent so much time on the East Coast, you know, in Boston and New York, I knew what that was like, and I didn't want to deal with that kind of rat race anymore. So it felt like an oasis in the middle of that. And I think... Since, you know, when Lyle joined the band, it's only grown. And honestly, Boulder's kind of fallen off, but Denver is insane right now. And it's pretty well known as, like... Absolutely. I mean, what, what blew me away about Denver when I, when I got there is, like, even just starting some of the side gigs and things like that, like, on a, you know, like you talk about, like, on a Tuesday, uh, just show up, and then all of a sudden there's, like, 250 people out on a Tuesday to go and hear a band over at Cervantes or something like that. But then I also hear about like, oh, there's something over at the spot Ophelia's and like, that's crowded as well. And like, and then this other person that was playing down the road that I didn't get a chance to go see, like they had a bunch of people at their show too. It's like, you know, Denver is blossoming in such an incredible way right now, but it's not just musicians that are moving there, but it's also music goers and people like the, the energy of the town is known that like, People want to experience art. They want to experience the mountains. They want to experience art. They want to. The thing that I love about Coloradans is they want to like squeeze the juice out of life, and it's a. It's been an incredible thing to see, especially coming from a place like New York, where like, people are just kind of like, all right, cool, impress me, you know. <laughs> it's like it's pretty cool because here, but like here, everybody just gives themselves so much to the moment so much to the 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 live experience because it really is a reciprocal thing you know the energy that comes from the audience influences the band on stage which of course then goes back to influence the audience and then it's just a it's a beautiful dance that we that we're all a part of and Colorado's an incredibly special place for that yep, yep well said and bold if anybody's listening in Boulder to the podcast you got to pick up your game damn it say man step it up uh, so one or two more questions. Any burning questions, Mike? I think there's still, still some available to Telluride tomorrow. There you go. No, we'll see you in Telluride. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some. You never know. Uh, the role of social media in your success is the question. And it's, your growth it, is I mean, it's, be, it's becoming a bigger and bigger thing nowadays. I mean, I, I think you'd, you'd, be able, you'd be able to talk to, like, like remember, before this. But Remember the, uh, the, 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 um, the stamp parties I was talking about? The, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. No, it's a different kind of game. It's, you know, it's all free game. now. Yeah. You don't have to have, like, the, you know, making postcards and send out a mailer and all that crap and spend money on it. It's like... Free advertising. Yeah, but, but I mean, social media is such an interesting thing because it's such a growing, it's so new in 
relatively or right. relatively but i mean like just like it, uh, maybe not new it's so it's ever changing and like all the all different different trends all the di- like now you got to pay attention to algorithms like facebook's charging you up up the like uh, uh, the place uh for any sort of way to reach fans and like you really have to get creative at this point and i think that that's something that a lot of people are really trying to f- trying to navigate and figure out because like all it is is developing a voice. It's kind of like playing another instrument, you know, uh, like, like at this point. So it's like creating a voice and creating how do you take the live experience, be able to translate it in, in, into a, a digital form that people can get enticed by and excited about. Um, but inevitably, it just becomes word of mouth, just like, just like the old days when you were putting stamps on it, sending the stuff out, and people say, like, you know what, that looks cool. I want to go see it. It's just kind of like the modern adaptation of that, but there's a lot more coming in, you know? Like the information age is bigger than it's ever been. And so how do you how do you kind of navigate and cut through the rest? And it's all creativity at this yeah. point. But it's also a direct band to fan, band to audience connection now. But you know, it seemed like before I remember putting up posters on light poles you know hoping someone saw it and knew about our show you know what i mean like right now I you're guess in their pocket knows our, you'd have no idea you could do no way to gauge it now you can gauge how well your show's doing how well your stuff is getting out there to people and you know people are hearing the music it's the biggest thing we used to have to drive three thousand miles to get to california for someone to hear our songs you know and hope they'd show up to the gig and then buy the cd and blah blah now it's like you just put it out, and they've heard it before you got there. And there's no radio, or there's no industry to go through. You just put it out. Now nice. you got people in Luxembourg that have already heard the single we put out this morning. Oh yeah. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> yep. I was gonna say. I'm excited. Yeah, right. Excited. By the way, by by the new album coming out when? Oh, 25th. 25th. Uh-huh. 25th right. of this month. Yeah. All right. One more burning question. Anybody got a burning question before these guys go back? All right, Brian, you get the last question. You were talking about uh, forming an LLC. That was like a big deal, like where it became more of a company and less of an individual effort. Is that fair to say? More of an entity, is that what you said? Yeah. So, and, and so that was a big, big thing for you, like forming yes. an LLC, right? Yes. So in one of the things that Dave talked about, like right off the bat, like getting paid as a band, like how does that work when you're a band like the size of Motet? Like what, you have seven, eight people in there? Uh-huh. How do you guys get paid? How do you figure it out? What is like what what's a cap table look like for you guys? That's always a big thing with the startup is how are you going to divide up the equity oh. in the company, right? So, you know, I'm not asking for specifics. I'm sure that's private and I don't want to, you know, cause any trouble, but how how do those conversations work in a band? Like how do you figure out who's going to the ownership? Like, you know, well, in my mind I feel like Fish is 25% across the board, right? There's four of them. But there's like eight of them, like, but people are coming in and out and going. Like, How do you figure it out? Well, fortunately, we don't really make that much money still, so <laughs> there's not that much to deal with. No, we basically pay ourselves for, for our work, and then we pay all the other people that need to get paid. But there are... No, we just do a show by show, and, and it really hasn't changed that much. In fact, we, we, the more money we make, the more money we spend. So we, we're not, we don't have a problem trying to split up all our riches because, you know, <laughs> it's just that we're still like... I can't wait bad. to get to that point. I know. I'm pretty excited <laughs> for those arguments. 
pretty excited for this. <laughs> yeah, Give me man. that money. Uh, no, it, it's really, uh, at this point, it hasn't gotten to be like that. I think with most, most bands, it doesn't necessarily get to be like that when you're just a touring band because, because you know you're out there working just trying to like make a living and, and support each other playing the music. So that kind of discussion doesn't necessarily need to happen very often but i'm you know I, I for us we have band meetings once a week on the phone we get with our manager we talk about routing we talk about all the things that need to be talked about and uh and it's really a, a democratic process you know and I, I think that you have to do that to be able to make the music democratic because if you have resentment and weird vibe about like oh you're making more money here make more money there then, or, or like, you know, you saw what happened to, you might not have seen this, but Parliament Funkadelic is notorious for having broken up because all the band members were pissed that George Clinton wasn't paying them enough, you know? And same with James Brown. Like, all these bands had these mutinies, you know? And it's like, eventually, it's going to fall apart if you, don't, if you don't communicate. So I, I think that for a band like us or like my friends in String Cheese, I've talked to them about this, it's just... You just talk about it and you figure out and you and you and you, you split things up, you know, equally and, and you just you know, you're all in it together and that makes when you're on stage the music that much more powerful and that much more you know what I mean? Like how could you be on stage having that kind of resentment and, and feeling weird vibes about that? Fortunately for us, like money's not why we do this. We do it because we love music and the fact that we can afford to do this and you know, support our families and, and tour around and, and make the music we want to make and not make music we have to make because you know, somebody told us we have to make it. It's an amazing thing, so we're, we'll never take that for granted. Thank you for listening to Aspen Entrepreneurs Podcast. Big thanks to Klug Properties for presenting the Aspen Entrepreneurs Showcase events and this podcast. To find out more about Chris Klug's business, head over to klugproperties.com. That's K-L-U-G properties.com. This event was also sponsored by Aspen Brewing Company, who hosted the event at the Aspen Tap. If you'd like to hear previous episodes of the podcast, you can find them in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or online at aspenentrepreneurs.com slash podcast. Please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the podcast to more listeners and tell a friend you think might enjoy it. 